If, uh, if you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn in the text that I'll be reading, please do so by turning to 1 Corinthians. Uh, for those who may be visitors or guests with us, uh, we also put the scriptures on the screen in front of us, but if you have your Bibles open, it allows you to kind of look at the context and so forth. So I always encourage that. Uh, today we're moving on in our study in 1 Corinthians, and we're picking up at chapter 2, and I'll be reading the first just five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, and I, when, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And this is the word of our God. May the Lord bless it as, as it's read, as it is preached, and also as we receive it this morning. So over 30 years ago, uh, there was a, a book um, published that was edited by a theologian, and I think some of you would probably recognize the name and maybe even follow him, read his books, or listen to his podcast, and it's Michael Horton. And, and Michael Horton put together this book um, that uh, was written by a number of different uh, prominent uh, evangelical scholars, pastors, um, leaders, uh, men like that some of the names you'll recognize are a lot, way more than this, but men like uh, Chuck Colson, uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, J.I. Packer, men like that were all contributors to this book. The book had the title, uh, Power of Religion power religion, a selling out, the selling out of the evangelical church. And you note at the end of that has a, has a question mark there, the selling out of the evangelical church is a question mark. And so all of the chapters and all of the writers in that book were, were basically asking this question. And this was 30 years ago. This book was published in 1992. And they're asking the question, is the evangelical church, is it selling out to uh, the, the thinking and the ways of, of this world system? Uh, that is a question that I think the, the church must ask. Uh, I think it is a question that the church must ask today. Uh, I think it is a question that Paul is forcing us to ask and hopefully answer correctly here at Old Cutler Presbyterian Church. Anyway, Michael Horton, the theologian I mentioned, he wrote the introduction of this book. And in, a, in, a, in the introduction, he said this. He said, Lord Acton's famous remark, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely has become something of a cliche after the century of the will to power in the wake of the alleged death of God. Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher of the last century, he's talking about the 19th century, predicted this error and argued that from now on, power, not persuasion, ideology, not religious doctrine, will fill the vacuum left by the emptying, the emptying of Christianity's message, the emptying of Christianity's message. I think that's something that we need to think about, the emptying of Christianity's message. It's something today that we have to consider, is that happening? But equally, it is something that, that I think Paul was confronting. That soon after actually going into Corinth and seeing these people come to faith, that emptying of the message. The last words are on the screen in front of you, the vacuum left by the emptying of Christianity's message. 
You, you remember uh, back in chapter 1, when, when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he says something kind of similar to that in verse 17. And what, he, what he's talking about is the, the reason there as to, to why he didn't come and, and, and actually use all the wisdom of the world, all of those kinds of things. And he said this, lest the cross of Christ, this is verse 17, chapter 1, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's what his concern was. That's what was happening. And when, whenever that happens, when the, when the cross is emptied of its power, when that happens, the void is going to be filled. I mean, that's going to, it guts Christianity. It guts what it's about. And, and we end up filling that vacuum, filling that void with something. And what it so often gets filled with is this world. And that's what Paul is fighting against in Corinth. And I think that's what we're, we should be fighting against in the church of God today, that emptying of what this faith is about and giving into the things of the world. So Paul fights, and in chapter 1, we've looked at that and we've talked about it. He continues to fight in, in the first part of chapter 2, but what he does differently here is he moves from just confronting them and talking to them directly to actually speaking in the first person, singular. In other words, there's a lot of things about himself here. It's almost autobiographical. And it's autobiographical in relationship to Paul and his time with them. And so what he's basically saying is this, remember, church, remember when I was there, when I was with you. Remember how I spoke to you. Remember what I was like. Remember what was driving me. In other words, what he's saying in these five verses is simply this. He wants them to consider and to think about, which I want to, I want to put these as our points. Three things. Number one, his message. Number two, his manner. And number three, his motive. Okay? His message, his manner, his motive. So as we look at this short text, we're going to dig into that a little bit and see how it helps us to, to better stand against um, a world and a system that is counter to God. So the first thing we see here is this his message, his message. And he makes that pretty clear. I mean, if you note in verse 2 again, he talks about it. He says this very clearly. He says, for I, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay. Now, before we talk about what he's saying, uh, let's first of all make sure we don't misunderstand what he's saying. Uh, there's, a, there's a way that we can read this almost as absolute, right? and what I mean by that is the absolute in the sense that Paul could be communicating, and he's not, but that Paul could be communicating that when he was there, he thought about nothing and said nothing but that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and that was it. That was it, okay? Now, there's a, there's a few reasons why that cannot be the case with Paul. Uh, one of them comes from this letter itself. I mean, if you know 1 Corinthians, and we'll, we'll, we'll eventually know it pretty well after we get through this over the next year and a half. Um, over in chapter 15, that's the great resurrection chapter, right? And, and you may remember the way he begins that chapter, because what he says at the beginning of that chapter is this. To the Corinthians, he says, I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you of the, the gospel, the gospel that, that I preached. And then he goes on and he tells them what that was. And he says this, this is what I preached. I preached that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that he was buried. And the third day he arose. Okay? 
He's saying, you believe that message. In other words, he preached Jesus Christ crucified and Jesus Christ resurrected, right? You know, something to keep in mind is that, you know, Jesus wasn't the only person in the first century world that was crucified. I mean, right? A lot of people were crucified. A lot of criminals and vicious people were crucified. It was, it was Rome's way of, crucify, of, of executing the worst. What made Jesus' death unique is who he is, what he accomplished, and Easter Sunday. Okay? We have to remember that. Okay? So that when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We have to talk about that resurrection. It has to be a part of the story. Okay? Paul, in Romans, Romans chapter 4, verse 25, he makes this interesting statement, and it's, it's important that we hear this. He talks about how Jesus died on the cross for our trespasses or for our sins, right? But then he goes on and he says he was resurrected or he was raised for our justification. Okay? So without the resurrection... There is no hope. Without the resurrection, there's no life. Without the resurrection, there's no victory. So then we have to come back and we have to think about these words and go, okay, what in the world is Paul doing when he says this? When he says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What he's saying is that with all that he taught, with all that he said, and with all that we teach as a church, that what has to always be the center of it both in terms of what we think and what we know and how we believe and how we respond, it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. That has to be at the center of everything. We can't get past that. We can't redefine that. We can't, we can't remove that from the picture. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything Paul was about ultimately was Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything that Paul proclaimed was Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now let's consider for a moment what that is, what our, what our faith rests on. It, it rests on the God-man Jesus who becomes our substitute and takes our place and takes our sin upon himself and on that cross faces what that sin deserved. He faced the justice and the wrath and the judgment of God because that's what sin deserves, the justice and the wrath and the judgment of God. That's what the rejection of God deserves, the justice, the wrath, and the judgment of God. Now, why does that matter so much? Well, Paul's using this, remember, in the context of trying to help the Corinthians to fight against worldliness. Okay? There's a couple of things I think you need to keep in mind. One of those is that that death, taking our sin and dealing with that sin gives those who believe in him wondrous reconciliation with the, the, the living God. 
We have that now because of, he's dealt with the thing. It's dealt with, right, on the cross. But it also, and I touched on this last week, but I think this is key to Paul's argument and what he's doing because what I think he's doing is he's doing battle against worldliness and he's doing battle against worldliness by reminding us of something that is critically important we see in the cross. That if the cross was required for our salvation, if it were required to deal with your sin, your rebellion, your rejection against God, then what about all the rest that has rejected God? What about this world system that has rejected God? What is it going to face? If it took God's wrath and judgment upon his son for you and me, don't make a mistake and think that the world around us and all of its godlessness and rejection is going to face anything less than that judgment and wrath. Now, why is Paul saying all of this? Because he wants us to understand there is nothing to be enamored over. This is going to be judged. It, it's almost like this. It's, it's almost a, a way I was processing it this week as I was thinking about it. It's almost like a, 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 the cross is at a, at a fork in the road. And there's these, these, these two directions. So there's this road and, and everybody is on it, right? And it, and it goes up and the, the cross and the road forks like this. But then there's a cross and it's right there. And it's, it's turned this direction, Right? And so anyone that would just surrender and believe in Jesus, just rest in him, just trust in him, just put your faith in him, repent of your sin and turn to him, then what happens is the, the blood of the cross, it provides for you and you are saved and you're on that narrow road, right? That road now of life and a new heart and God's will and God's way and God's word, all that is really good, that you didn't know this was all really good before. But then there's that other road, right? And, and here, here's what it, what it, what it kind of looks like at times. There's this other road that goes this way. It, it either rejects or ignores or goes the way of the cross. has nothing to do with it. Over there, it, it, it can look on the outside. It can look to us as being so beautiful and so powerful and so strong and so right. But it's dead. It's all dead. And it's all going to be judged. And in a sense, Paul is saying, why? Why would we walk away from this to that? We all know the the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, right? It's a great song, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. If I were to think about Paul's words here, it's like, turn your eyes upon Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you remember that line in that, in that hymn or that song that basically says when we do that, when we turn our eyes to him, when we put our eyes upon him, then the things of earth will grow strangely Strangely dim. That's why Paul wants us on the cross. It's our only hope. It's our only help. It's our only salvation. 
but it is also an announcement of the judgment of this world. That's the message. Now he goes from the message to the manner. When he talks about his manner, he basically is making it clear that when I came there, I, I didn't... I didn't bring anything. I didn't come in some way that was just like wowing you or whatever. It wasn't me. I didn't come that way is what he's saying. In fact, he's, he's almost taking what he told them back in chapter 1, if you were here last week, because he told the Corinthians, he's like, listen, you guys are wanting all this stuff of the world. You're wanting all this wisdom. And not many of you are wise and not many of you are noble birth and not many of you are important and wealthy and powerful. Not, any, not many of you are any of those things. So what are you doing? It's just sort of speaking to and challenging the way they're thinking. It doesn't make sense. And then Paul's saying, when I came to you, I wasn't that way. And he, he talks about this both in terms of what he intentionally did. And then he also talks about it from the perspective of something unintentional that was shown in Paul. We see the intentionality of Paul in verse 1 in the first part of verse 4. So if verse 1 in the first part of verse 4, it says this. And when I came to you, brothers, I, I, when when and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God. That can also, some of your versions, let me just mention this real quick. It's a little bit of an aside, but just mention it. Some manuscripts, not versions, some of the manuscripts actually have the mystery of God there. It, 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 could, it could either be both. The ESV is taking it that testimony is a better manuscript to this. Um, the mystery is another way of thinking about the gospel that is true in Scripture. A mystery is something that in the past we did not know, but God has revealed it. That's what the gospel is. That the hope of salvation is of a, from a crucified Savior. That would be, that's a mystery to the world. The world's not going to figure that out on their own. But this, this manuscript, translated in the ESV, says to the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. He said when he came into Corinth, they weren't like Lofty words, lofty speech, wisdom, plausible words of wisdom. So what is he doing? Well, first of all to say, do not read this as an indication that Christians need to be anti-intellectual. That's not what he's getting at. Or that Christians aren't to study deeply. Or that Christians aren't to be involved in apologetics. Or that ministers and teachers shouldn't prepare to preach and teach. Uh, Lord, a lot of ministers need to be told you need to prepare better than that, right? Uh, that's, that's not what he's doing. You have to put this in the context of the first century world and what was going on in Corinth and what he's standing against. Because what he's standing against is what was happening, and I mentioned this, these itinerant philosophers who would come in and go and travel from place to place. And what they would do is they would basically just start, start with all of this sort of worldly wisdom that would enamor so many people. Because they had a goal. And their goal was to convince people to believe them, to come to them. To support them. It was driven by self, right? And, and so what they wanted is power and influence and money and all those kinds of things. That's why they did it. They wanted to have the best words that the, because those, those words of wisdom would get people to be wowed by those particular things. And Paul says, well, that's not me. I didn't come into Corinth in that regard. And there's a reason for it. The reason is because Paul didn't want the Corinthians nor anyone else, nor do I want you to see me. Paul wanted them to see through him. Paul was a pointer to another. Okay? He was pointing to Jesus. That's what he wanted them to see. And, and that, that pointing, I mean, it's, it's, it's important to Paul that they, they get past him. They get to, to Jesus. And so they can't, 
really see him. He doesn't want that. It's kind of like, you know, if, if, if you have an animal, a dog or a cat, and you want that dog or cat to look for something, I think the thing you got to do is you got to pick the animal up and take them there and show it to them. Or you got to take the dog or cat's head and turn it to that thing. But the last thing in the world you would ever want to do is to take your finger and go look at that. Because you know what your cat's going to look at, or your dog, your finger. They'll probably sniff it too. But that's it. They're not going to look there, right? Tonight's the Super Bowl. And uh, you know, our team is not in it, and our team got beat by one of the teams that's in it. So, boo, Kansas City. No. <laughs> you may have a favorite team in there, I don't know. Um, you may just want, which I do, a, a good football game, right? And so if you don't have a team in, you want to watch the Super Bowl because you want to watch a good football game. Uh, but there are other things that you will see in a football game, and I'm not talking today about Taylor Swift. But you'll, if she makes it, you'll see her. But I will not talk about Taylor Swift today. But you'll see her a lot of commercials. And one of the things about football, I mean the Super Bowl, not just football, but Super Bowl and commercials, is that that is the most watched television event in our nation. And so that means that companies, they, they want, they get the best people doing advertisement, they pay a lot of money, they pay a lot of money to, for the commercials, they pay a lot of money to air these things in order for people to supposedly buy products from them. And so the, the Super Bowl commercials are usually pretty fantastic, right? Top notch. I don't know if you can get any better. Right? I imagine tonight this will be the case where you will see some really funny Super Bowl commercials. You'll see some, I don't know, some really sort of technically sophisticated commercials. Um, you may even see some that are inspiring. But I also imagine that you're going to probably see tonight a commercial, and you're going to get to the end of it and go, man, that was amazing. And then you're going to say, what was that about? <laughs> because of the commercial. It's going to just have your attention. It's like that good. But you don't even remember what the product is, right? What Paul is saying is he wants nothing, nothing, nothing to stand in the way of people seeing Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so he didn't come to draw attention to himself. And he was very intentional about that. But not only the intentional part, there's, a, there's really an unintentional thing that we see here as well. I mean, you look at verse 3, because in verse 3, he makes this statement. He says, and I was, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Now, I, I, you know, we don't really know what he's talking about, what he's necessarily describing. Commentators have a lot of opinions on that from, you know, that, that he could have been struggling as he came. The city was in before going to Corinth was Athens, and it could have been some of the things he dealt with there, and he was discouraged when he came into Corinth. Uh, it, it, it could have been that he's talking about something that was happening physically with him. Uh, it could be there was something that was going on in Corinth itself. I mean, if you remember Acts 18, which we studied the first sermon in relationship to preparing for this. In Acts 18, it talks about how Paul gets cast out of the Jewish synagogue when he goes in and he starts preaching. And the Lord, remember, had to show up to Paul in a vision and tell Paul, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Keep preaching the, the, the word. I have people in that city, Right. It could be that. Some commentators actually say that the weakness and the fear and much trembling was because he, he, was, he was fully cognizant of the weight of being under this word. I don't know exactly why he says that. But I do know he does not say this. 
I was with you in power and might and strength. He does not. He was with them in weakness and fear and much trembling. And in fact, this isn't just a one-time thing for Paul. He, he repeats it. Remember later in, in 2 Corinthians, if you're unaware of this, Paul prays to, to, to the Lord to take away this thorn in the flesh, and he prays three times. Remember that? And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 9 and 10, the Lord speaks to him, and the Lord says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, what is this saying to us? God doesn't need this world's power or strength to accomplish his purposes. God doesn't need strong men or strong women of this world. He needs people who are weak and trusting in him. That's it. That's it. And whenever we, we buy into this world system and we think we, in order to be relevant to it, we gotta, we got to attach to its ideas and attach to its ways and attach to its principles and, and live those things out that way, we, we are standing against the inversion of the cross itself. I mean, just think about it. The cross of Jesus Christ, that is the way God redeems the world. By something that everybody would have said what? Don't give in to it. God isn't using it. Ultimately, there's one thing this world needs. <laughs> and there's one thing that changes lives. And that is God. God. And that's what Paul's third point, his motive, is all about. His motive. He wants to get them there. You've got to see this is really about God and not about you and not about me and not about us. God. And so then, remember when he says in verse 4, it's not about plausible words and words of wisdom and all those kind of things. He said this is what it's about. End of verse 4, he, he makes a statement that it's in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It's, it's the Spirit's power. This is, this is how it works. It's the Spirit's power. To what goal? Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Because if, well, let me say it first like this. There is no faith that's resting in the wisdom of men. But there can be a sort of religious kind of thing that we can get where we think, but all that is going to take is somebody else with better wisdom to convince you away from it. There is no, hear me, no wowing, no manipulating, and let me even say this, 
no convincing people to faith. The only way that a heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh is by the Spirit of Almighty God regenerating that heart. And this is part of the reason why, and part of the answer for the question I occasionally get, which I don't get much from you guys now, but used to get it a lot. Why don't we as Presbyterians do altar calls? And I will give you two answers to that. One, they're not necessary. And I'll explain that more in a second. Two, they're more often than not emotionally manipulative. Let's back up. I am not saying. It's always like, preacher, say it, and tell them what you're not saying, and then tell them what you're saying. For all you altar call lovers out there, I'm not saying that there are never instances that God doesn't use that. And I'm not saying that there are never any instances where there's like something done in a way that's it's appropriate. I'm not saying that. So what I am saying, though, is this, and I've been in a lot of those. I've even, I've done a few in, in different kinds of ways than you would normally see, but, but um, I've been in them, and I've seen them, and it's the, the music and the preacher going on and on and on and on until he can get somebody to finally move, and then maybe others will move, right? Here's what I want you to understand. If you walked in the door of this church today and you are an unbeliever okay, and you are here, right there in your seat, you do not have to move an inch. If the spirit of the living God starts to stir in your soul and is opening your eyes and hearts to understand something, that in your sin, you are going to face his judgment. But there is a way. And that way is turning from it and turning to Jesus in faith. And you do that right there in your seat without moving an inch. You will be saved. Now, I do believe you need to talk to somebody. So I'll be at the door. Somebody, talk to Greg. Put your hand up. That's Greg. <laughs> because you need, you need to know right, what it, what is, what's next. What do I do? How do I grow? Right? But you, do you remember, do you remember what, what Jesus said to Nicodemus? That it's the Spirit of God that works, and it works like wind. It goes wherever it's going to go. We just need to put the cross out there, put the message out there, put the hope out there. Say it. Say it truthfully. Say it aloud. Say it. And let God Almighty work. Because God alone saves. God alone saves. God alone is powerful to save. All right, now let me circle back, and I'm going to wrap up with this. The beginning of this sermon in the book Power Religion. 
the first time I read that book was in 1992, 1993. came out in 92. And I was at that time working with a ministry that many of you know about called Ministries in Action. That's when Karen and I, we moved here to Miami the first time in 92. And I was heading up part of this ministry that did short-term mission teams. And we worked in the Caribbean and in, in Latin America. And I took this book with me on the first team that I led, Power Religion. And it was a team from Atlanta, and they were a large group. It was, it was a young life group. And they're saying, so they had several adults, and they had a whole bunch of kids. It was a big group. And, and I wanted, I'd been out of seminary all of a minute. I was working, leading this ministry, and I wanted so badly to be impressive. I wanted to impress these young people and these leaders, and, and I wanted to impress the people that I work with. Woody was one of them, um, and, and actually my father-in-law headed up this organization, so I really wanted to impress him. I wanted to impress all of these people as, and be this great leader. So I was super prepared, and that's, I mean, that's one of the things you guys probably know about me. I'm like, uber prepared dude. I have nightmares. I had one last night about being unprepared for something. <laughs> uber prepared. I go to the airport, I meet the team, we get on the plane, I give them all their instructions about all of this, help them to, to think about it, and we fly down. And the, it was to the Dominican Republic. And so we, we get off the, the, the plane, and we have transportation because we're going out to a, a very remote area, a very impoverished area, where we're going to be working with the local church and helping them, we'd already helped them to build their building, their church building, and now we're helping them to, to build a school. And so this team was going to be working on that and then doing ministry in the community. And so as we're driving out to this really poor remote area, um, I start to feel like I'm getting sick. And by the time we get out there, I mean, two or three hours out there, I mean, I am, I mean, I'm really, really sick. Like, as sick as I've ever been in my life, except when I had COVID. And those of you who were here when I had COVID know I was like really, really sick. Uh, but I was sick. I mean, really sick. And we were way out in the country. There was nothing around. There was no medicines. There was, and, and the, the place we were staying, I mean, it wasn't, it was this little village town kind of thing. And it had the church. And then the pastor's house was over here. And all the ladies stayed in that house. And then I, I think they probably bought for a, a few bucks this little shack that was right beside a railroad track. And, I mean, it was a shack. I'm not kidding. Holes in the floor, holes in the walls. I mean, literally, I could see mice running in and out the building, right? That's where the guys stayed. They painted it bright blue so it looked bright on the outside. But it was a, it was a shack. The whole time, we were there for 14 days. And I, I think I was sick for 13 of those days. I was laid up in that bed, that cot with the mosquito net over me, in that shack alone with my book, Power Religious. <laughs> I was so sick. The only bathroom was the pastor's. And everybody went to the pastor's to use his bathroom, but, but I, I was too sick to walk up there. So I had to use the outhouse. And yes, it is that bad. And you would think, as important as Mike Campbell is, as significant and potent and powerful as I am, that that trip would have been disastrous without me. But it was wonderful. 
They built the building. They did ministry in the community and shared the gospel. They did a VBS. And I was supposed to be the guy preached. One of the other guys just preached in my stead. And they had a glorious time because a glorious God was at work. God uses us. He does. I'm not saying he doesn't. He uses us. But he doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. And he certainly doesn't need this world system. He's judging it. Don't give in to it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what Christ has done. Thank you for who he is. And thank you, Lord, for our salvation. Help us to stand strong in you, not in ourselves, not in our power, not in our strength, not in this world, but in you, so that we can be, as the little children sang, a light to this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.